for leading us through the most songs and uh, appreciate the focus upon our Savior. And that's, uh, that's what we have to look, to, look, to look forward to in the upcoming years as we study the Gospel of Luke and we get to see uh, at, in cl- at close up uh, a clearer picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And, and uh, the response that calls for us as we read God's word, as we read the, who he is and the promise that he's made, it really calls for a response of faith, a response of, of trusting in God's word and obedience to God's word. And, and that's what we uh, hope to do, and be to men and women of faith who walk by faith and according to in, in, in the Son and in his word. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me now to the Gospel of Luke then. Uh, last week we began our series, and so this week we dive into the narrative. The, Luke's introduction was not so much narrative, almost a, a, uh, <clears throat> a forward, almost a preface kind of to the book. But at the beginning with verse 5 of chapter 1, we enter into what's uh, known as a narrative. It's just stories upon stories. And I hope that uh, you like stories because as we go through Luke, we'll simply be telling the stories. And the stories really speak for themselves. We can just simply speak the story. And if we do a good job in telling and explaining the story, then it, uh, the application of it uh, simply, uh, I think, will be quite evident. Uh, that was uh, Luke's part. Uh, that was Luke's purpose. So even as we study these uh, uh, things about the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will come to know and have confidence or assurance of the exact truth about the things that we have been taught as believers in Christ. All right, so Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 5 to 25. So again, uh, this will be a long section there too. I'll read it in the text of the sermon. Will you join with me in prayer one more time before we look to God's word? Heavenly Father, your word is truth, and we thank you, Lord, that your word reveals the one who is the truth. Your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would open our eyes to these truths and cause us to see that you are at work in our world, that you are involved, were not only as you promised it, but Lord, you were involved in the fulfillment of every detail, every circumstance that was in your providence and that would require, was required to bring about the completion of your plan for the world to save a people for your name, uh, to bring glory to yourself. So, Lord, we ask that even now as we study your word, may you help us to see these truths, help us to understand it's not only what it means, but, Lord, that your spirit would take your truths and then challenge and convict us and show us how we might apply your word uh, to our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Even as we <clears throat> are in Luke so much of Luke, so much of the New Testament really intersects with the Old Testament. There's many times as we read, even when we read the story, there are a lot of Old Testament references. And if we actually delve into it, it would be very quite rich to look at all the Old Testament relevant passages. But I'll just share with you one. I begin with Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. We also study Daniel. We learn of all his cool stories of faith and he and his friends and how they stood for the Lord and things like that. But Duke, uh, Daniel uh, is perhaps more known and more significant for all the prophecies that he gives. Uh, there are several prophecies, and one of the most famous prophecies that Daniel gives, or Daniel receives, is the prophecy of the 70-week prophecy. Sometimes we call it simply the 70, week, uh, 70 weeks of Daniel. But it is the most significant end-time prophecy in the whole Bible. It is, in fact, <clears throat> at least uh, it is one of the earliest and clearest uh, descriptions by God of the timing of his plans of salvation for the world. 
God reveals the, not only the timing of, sal- of his plan of salvation uh, to the world, but he specifically reveals it to this elderly gentleman, an elderly man, an elderly Daniel, who was at that time in Babylon, taken captive as a 16-year-old, now probably in his 80s, and he receives this vision. And in this vision, uh, I'll describe it for you, but we're not focusing so much on the vision, but on the circumstances of the vision today. But the vision is simply that 70 weeks or 77s or 70 periods of seven years were prophesied in which God would fulfill his plan of salvation for his people. And there's a lot of details of that. In fact, I'm hoping that next year on Good Friday, I will preach uh, Daniel's 70-week vision. And you'll, at some point, you may find the the significance of that for good, uh, for not Good Friday, but for uh, Palm Sunday. And so this prophecy reveals specifically that when the Messiah would arrive in Jerusalem to die as an atonement for sin. There's much more to the prophecy, of course, but uh, that extends all the way to the end of the end of times. But sufficient for us today is that in this uh, in this vision, God reveals His plan of salvation. He reveals it to an elderly man, an elderly Daniel. He reveals it during a time of prayer, a time of, it was the evening prayer. And then he reveals, it is revealed to elderly Daniel by an angel, and his name is Gabriel. Outside of the two passages in Daniel where Gabriel is mentioned, Gabriel is never mentioned outside of those ever again in the Bible until the Gospel of Luke that we have here. And once again, in this, uh, in Luke, Luke verses 1, 5 to 25, we five, and then he'll find, in fact, Gabriel will also appear a second time, but he'll appear to, uh, to Mary. The, and here, the angel Gabriel appears to an elderly man during a time of prayer, but this time not, does not announce the promise of the plan of salvation, but he announces the beginning of the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. This narrative is all otherwise known as the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. And that is what it says. If you want to know what this passage says, it says it is, tells us about how the birth of John the Baptist is announced by an angel. Now, while that is what it says, it's not what it means, right? Sometimes what it says is not necessarily what it means. What is its significance? What is its biblical truth? And this is what it means. This is what this passage would teach us, that God's plans for the world and for you as well as individuals, are fulfilled in their proper time. That God's plans for you, God's promises for you, for the world, are all fulfilled in their proper time. That's going to be the main point. You know, we who live in a world that believes that everything is by random chance, we who believe that everything is a cosmic accident, oftentimes will find ourselves being tempted to think like the world. To think that really, if God, that God's not in control of everything, that if he, we believe that he exists, he's more, like a, a, he's more like a God who's way up there, who really is not involved in the daily activities of our lives. And he just allows everything to happen by random chance. And we, tend to, and we can fall into that temptation and think that God simply doesn't care or that everything's just an accident or oh, there's no reason at all why things happen in our life. Even though we may be somewhat aware that God is a sovereign God. But we who do believe in a God who created and controls the world will find purpose, will find meaning in every circumstance and every detail of our lives. We may not understand the significance of it all, but make no mistake, if God is in control of all things, 
He's in control of every detail, every circumstance of your life, even the negative things, the moments of sin, the moments of struggle, the moments of disappointment are all in control of the hand of, the, of our providential and sovereign God. As we learned last week in our introduction to Luke, one of Luke's main themes is that Jesus' life and ministry are the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. That these are the truth. These are, what happened to him is the exact truth. <coughs> Luke, who stated his, atten- his intention to compile an account of the things accomplished or that is fulfilled among us, begins his gospel not with the birth of Jesus, like Matthew does, or with the ministry, or even with the ministry of John the Baptist, as Mark does. But he begins it even further back with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. And there's a purpose in this, as Luke does, because he wants to show the very details that God takes to fulfill his plan of salvation. Now, some of us are not detailed people. You know, I'm not one of those detailed kind of people. I don't think I am, at least. But some of you are very detailed people. But even no matter whether detailed people or non-detailed people, we can appreciate that our God is a God of detail. The details matter to him. And what he says, he fulfills to a T. He crosses every T, dots every I. And because these details matter to him, as we study the details of his plan of salvation, it should cause us to awe, to be in awe of our God. As we're going to look at that passage today, we're going to find a simple three-part, uh, three-part outline of three scenes. We're going to just walk through three scenes of this, this story, and that is this. Three scenes in the announcement of John the Baptist's birth that show how God's plans for the world are fulfilled in their proper time. So that's going to be our outline today. Three scenes in this announcement that show how God's plans for the world are fulfilled in their proper time. And hopefully we'll be able to just, you'll be able to see that uh, even if I uh, don't point out every little detail. So, <coughs> excuse me. So the first scene we find in verses 5 to 12. And that is, we learn about the scene which describes for us really the Zacharias's lot. Zacharias's circumstances, if you will. And so... We see, uh, in such as Zachariah's life, you might also include Elizabeth's lot in, in this as well. We see their, their lot in with regards to their personal life in verses 5 to 7. We tend to often think of God's salvation plan in terms of big picture. That is, God saving the whole world, or God saving the sins of the world, or, or the elect. But we tend to forget sometimes that God's plan intersects and applies to lives of individuals. Even in the days of Jesus, so many people uh, his life intersected with. God brought, Jesus walked on this earth and brought salvation too. And even for each of and every one of us, God's plan of salvation is fulfilled in us, in every detail that the Lord used to bring us to salvation. And not only that, but every detail of our life that God is using to complete our salvation, to sanctify us, to make us, to make us more like Christ. So we can't miss that, and because we, and when we look at this passage, we see the details, the circumstances of Zacharias's lot, and his and his family, and his wife's lot as well. We read five, verses five to seven. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife and the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. 
And they were both advanced in years. So <coughs> Luke establishes it for us the date of when this all takes place. It takes place in the days of Herod, king of Judea. This is a reference to Herod the Great, who ruled from 37 to 4 BC. He reigned as a, uh, he was actually not a Jewish man, but he was a, an, an Edomite, an Edomian. And he ruled, yet he ruled over Judea because of the connections he had with Rome. But the focus in the narrative is not on Herod, that's just that's the date, but on this man, this priest named Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. Zacharias' name means the Lord remembers. And certainly, even as we see this story play out, we we recognize that the Lord does remember Zacharias. He does remember Elizabeth. And he fulfills his promise not only to them individually, or not fulfills uh, (coughs) and blesses them individually, but he fulfills his promise of salvation. And so Zacharias, we told, is a priest. He's a descendant of Aaron, that is, uh, 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 who was the first high priest. His wife also is a descendant of Aaron. So that's kind of cool. Uh, a priest who marries a daughter of a priest. And so you can imagine their son is also going to be a priest, whoever he, uh, he will be. In addition, we learn that they are, this couple is a, is a godly couple. They are righteous in the sight of God. They're both righteous in the sight of God. And that's significant because it, for us, uh, they walk blamelessly in all their lives. They obeyed the Lord. They, but it doesn't mean they were perfect. But they simply they displayed a pattern, a, a life that was characterized by holiness and obedience to the Lord. So here's a great couple, a good family background, an example of godliness. But of course, not all is well. There's the, in verse 7, we see that conjunction. But here's not what's well in their lives. They had no child. Uh, they were childless. Then not only they were childless, some people are childless by choice we, in our days. But this was not childless by choice. This was childless because of infertility, because Elizabeth was barren. What's more, uh, their infertility was not just something that was recent, but they were both advanced in years. This is something they had wrestled with. They had, they had been in a state of childlessness for many years. The years had gone by. Literally, the days had already gone forward. Yeah, there's a sense that all the, there are more days behind them than there are days ahead of them. It was too late for them, practically speaking, to have children. And to be barren in those days and even in our days uh, would oftentimes bring along with it feelings of shame or feelings of disgrace, feelings of uh, feeling left out, disappointment for sure. Not only that, but the stigma of infertility was accentuated by by, uh, several biblical stories where infertility was sometimes the, the consequence of sin. Part of God's judgment, even. But the text makes clear here that this isn't the case for Zacharias and Elizabeth. They're not being punished for anything. They're not being punished because of sin. They are both righteous in the sight of God. And we will come to understand that God is behind this circumstance in our life for the glory of his grace. Now, we learned about their personal lot, but we also learn about Zacharias' priestly lot or his work lot. And particularly today, we see that more literally that he is going to be chosen by lot as he uh, fulfills his priestly ministry. Verse 8 through 10 we read, Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside of the hour of the incense offering. Now, God here, we are told, chooses to act in in an important moment in Zechariah's priestly ministry. In verse 5, we had learned that he was of the division of Abijah. That's not by accident that's mentioned there. It kind of gives us the background. According to 1 Chronicles 24, verse 10, the descendants of Aaron were divided into 24 orders, 24 divisions. Each division, uh, according to tradition, served at the temple for two one-week periods. So it would each go basically to the temple and serve there for a one week and twice a year. These priests that would, would be there to serve would fulfill the various tasks of the priesthood that were required. Now, one of the tasks involved offering incense upon the altar, the golden altar of incense that was inside the holy place of the temple. This place was significant because there's right in there's the place in the temple that's called the Holy of Holies. It's where no one could enter. Only the high priest could enter once a year. In that place was the Ark of the Covenant. The place that's symbolic to all of Israel that this was where God would go and would dwell upon, uh, dwell in as he the as the Israelites would approach him, particularly in the days of the tent of meeting. But now it was now behind the Holy of Holies. There would be a veil around the Holy of Holies. And right in front of the entrance to the veil of the Holy of Holies was this golden altar where incense would be offered. And incense would be offered on this altar twice a day, in the morning and the evening. And by the days of... uh, by the days of uh, the New Testament era, this opportunity to offer incense was one of the highest honors, privileges that a priest could have. It was so desired to be a participant. There was only a limited amount of uh, kind of uh, special places, special areas of service that one could have. And so oftentimes, each of the different various priestly uh, roles were chosen by lot. And this opportunity to offer incense was chosen, so it was so special that when you were chosen for it, you could only be chosen once, and you could never be chosen again for it. Basically, your name is taken out once you get to do this. It's that special. Because you are entering right before the Holy, practically right on the other side of the Holy Holies, and you get to offer incense. Now, it wasn't just merely to offer incense. This is not just, for Zach Rice, this is not just a, merely a going through the motions. Oh, this is just what we do. We kind of stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down, and raise our hands or open the Bible. The, when the priest offered incense at that time on the altar, it was the time of prayer for the nation. Twice a day, in the morning and the evening, when he offered incense on the altar, it would be a time when everyone was praying. And for Zacharias, he was praying. Zacharias was chosen by Lot on this day to enter into the holy place alone and offer up incense to God. And as he is offering incense, as well as praying to God on behalf of the people, you can count he's also praying on behalf of he and his wife. He's, this is probably one of those moments where he's felt closest to God ever than ever before. And we see that something astounding happens. Something amazing happens on this particular day in his life. This special, unique, chosen day for him, verse 11 through 11 to 12, we read, as he's, just as he's offered the, uh, the incense, 
All of a sudden, an angel, the Lord, appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. And so, he expected, you can imagine, he enters into the holy place. He's all by himself. The two people that had also gone in with him to basically remove the, the old the old uh, incense are, have now left. And he's left alone to offer the new incense of prayer. And you think, you know, he's just praying quietly before the Lord, kind of just not expecting anything, anything else to happen. But all of a sudden, appearing right there beside him, just to the right of him, as he's offering incense, an angel of the Lord appears of him. I mean, we don't, we're not told what he looks like at this point, but most angel appears in, in brightness. So there's probably some bright light. And just like everyone else who sees an angel, Zacharias is gripped with fear. He's trembling because all of a sudden, if, you know, well, let's face it, if anyone just showed up right next to us, we'd all be kind of gripped with fear. Not to mention that when it happens to be an angel. If I just showed up right next to you, you'd be like, whoa, PH, where'd you come from? you know, like, a little fear, right? But not like an angel, okay, fear. An angel shows up. God had chosen this day of all days, choosing to have his angel appear to this particular man to announce the beginning of the fulfillment of God's salvation plan. God was fulfilling his plan of salvation in these particular circumstances of Zacharias' personal and priestly life. And so we'll learn more specifics as to how God's going to fulfill his plan of salvation in the next scene. So we see Zacharias' lot. Now we'll take a look at, in this next scene, the verse 13 to 17, the, the angel's message. This angel that appears to him all of a sudden at this time of offering of, of the nation's prayer, and an angel shows up. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias. For your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. The angel comforts Zacharias. He's, af- he's afraid. He says, don't be afraid. And after the shock of the angel appearing before him wears off, the, <clears throat> uh, the, the next thing, the very words that come out of the angel's mouth is even probably more shocking to John, to Zacharias, excuse me. He says, your prayers and your petition, your prayers have been answered, Zacharias. Can you imagine that? This angel knows that Zacharias has been praying. He says, your prayers, man. He knows exactly what he's been praying. And he says, your prayers have been answered. And he tells him, this is how your prayers have been answered. Your wife will bear a son in light of his circumstances. We again gather from this that Zacharias was not one of those religious leaders who merely went through the motions of worship. He didn't just go through. He just didn't do what he's supposed to do. He did not confuse the offering of incense as the act of worship. He knew that what it symbolized, that it symbolized the, the worship and prayer of God's people as they petitioned the Lord, as they offered up their prayers to God, as incense arises to God. And he was praying, and God heard his prayer. Now, there's some debate as to what he was praying. Was he actually praying for a son at this moment? Some think he was, some think he wasn't. Was he praying rather maybe more, more uh, big picture? He was praying for the, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of God's kingdom, the salvation of the nation. 
Perhaps he was praying for that as well. Maybe he was praying for both. But nevertheless, whatever his specific prayers are, the answer to his prayer is the promise of a son. Your prayers have been answered. You will have a son. And you will name him significantly. You will name him John. John means, uh, his prayers are answered. John means that the, the Lord is gracious or the Lord has shown favor is the, is the name of that, is what his name means. It's a great name. The answer to Zacharias' prayer is the gift of God's grace. His grace is abundant, as we see in the next few verses. It's a description of God's grace that we manifest through the life of John. And in, uh, in this, the rest of the angel's message, <clears throat> we learn uh, several qualities of John's life what he will be. First of all, John will, we learn in verse 14, we read in verse 14 this, <clears throat> you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And so verse 14 tells us that John will be a source of joy. He'll be a source of joy not only for Zacharias and Elizabeth, but he'll be a source of joy for many, it says. His birth, which is recorded later on in Luke uh, 1, 57 and following, will cause all their neighbors and all their relatives to rejoice. Not to mention, his life will bring, cause many to rejoice as they repent of their sins and, and come and to know eventually the Savior. The second and third qualities of John's life are, are mentioned in verse 15. We read this. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. So number two, we learn that John will be set apart for the Lord. The mention of drinking no wine or liquor is indicative of something called the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow is, is mentioned for us in Numbers chapter 6. Zacharias would have understood this being a priest. In Numbers 6, the Lord gives instructions about how an Israelite could make a special vow to God. They say a special vow to dedicate themselves, to be committed to, to the Lord. He would be holy to the Lord. And some in the Old Testament were Nazarites for a short while, maybe a month or so. But while if there were a few, like Samson and Samuel, who were Nazarites from their birth. John would be a Nazarite, would be devoted to the Lord from his birth. Thirdly, we see in this verse that he would be spirit-empowered. He would be spirit-empowered. He would be filled with the Holy Spirit even while in his mother's womb. He would have the special enabling of God himself for the work which God would set him apart for. And we'll see the power of the Spirit at work in John's life. Verse 16 to 17 reveal for us uh, specifically what that work will be. Why does he need the empowerment to be set apart for the Lord, to be Spirit-empowered? Because he is set apart to become a, a sin-repenting preacher. Um, sin-repenting preacher. That is, his message will cause many to repent of their sin. His, verse 16, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. To turn Israelites back to the Lord is a, the wording of repentance. His work will be one that results in Israelites basically turning away from their idolatry, turning away from their, uh, their worship of self, and turning to God in faith. Later in Luke chapter 3, verse 2, John's ministry would involve the preaching of, the, of a baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's how John would call, and he would baptize them as a symbol of their repentance. 
But yet, even beyond that, John's most significant aspect of his ministry is recorded in verse 17. It is, we read this, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Fifthly, we see that John will be the Savior's forerunner. He'll be the Savior's forerunner. He'll be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming. He will be the fulfillment of the particular Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. Where the Messiah would not only come, but he would come before he came. He would be preceded by a messenger, God's messenger. There are two prophecies that are alluded to or particularly quoted here. The prophecies found in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 and chapter 4 verse 5 and 6. That prior to the arrival of the Messiah, God would send his messenger to prepare the way. It was a common in, in, old, in those days that before a king or a royal would arrive, there would be someone who would go before them, a herald. Someone who would, uh, an advanced team if you will, who would go before to tell everyone to get ready because the king is coming. You don't want to be found not ready or not have your best foot forward when the king is coming to visit you. To call any, and so this role John would play. He would go as a herald, and before the king would arrive, he would announce to everyone, the king is coming, the king is coming, therefore be ready, prepare the way, repent to your sins, because the king is coming. And this was John's ministry. He would come in the spirit and power of Elijah the prophet. He would call people to repent of their sins. He'd call them to be prepared for the Lord's coming, to get ready. Be prepared. John's, many of you know, John's ministry, he was a successful ministry. Uh, elsewhere in the gospel, it says that all of Israel was going to him. Not literally all, but the majority, many were going. This is a hyperbole. Many were going to him. He was so successful that some wondered if he was the Christ, in fact according to Luke 3.15. But in Luke 3.16, John reveals who he is. John answered, said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's life, and as you look elsewhere in the scriptures, John's life was meant to point to the one who would come after him. John was probably the most, Jesus called John the greatest of all those born of women. John was a great man. He was a humble man. He knew that it wasn't about him. It was about the one who could come after him. And his life was committed, devoted. He was spirit and power for the task. He called people to prepare for that one that would come. John's birth is the announcement of the coming of the one who would come and save us, the Messiah. See, the grace of God in sending his son, our Savior, did not only begin at our Savior's birth. It began even earlier. It began with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. John, who is God's gracious gift to Zacharias and Elizabeth, as well as God's gracious gift to the people of Israel. (coughs) So we see this fulfillment of the promise of a son would fulfill a specific role to be that messenger, all fulfilling God's plan. We move on to then the third scene. Verse 18 to 25, we see Zacharias' response. Now, Zacharias, who has just seen and heard the most astounding thing in all his life from this angel, 
So how does he respond? If you had just heard, seen and heard the most astounding thing in your life, well, how would you respond? Praise the Lord, maybe. Well, let's look at how, how Zacharias responds. Verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Essentially, Zacharias responds here with unbelief. You know he doesn't believe, basically, the angel. Because he asked God for some assurance. Literally, he asked asked this. In the Greek, it's, according to what will I know this? He says, what is it that I see? What kind of sign is there that I will know this will happen? He's asking for a sign. Of course, understandably, I can understand his unbelief and his doubt. He explains why. Because he and his wife are basically old and beyond the years of childbearing. Humanly speaking, it's too late for them to have kids. But he has forgotten, right? He's forgotten who is speaking to him. He's forgotten that this angel speaks on behalf of God. And God gives children to whomever he wills. Most famously, elderly Abraham and Sarah, right? In fact, later on we find that uh, Zacharias actually lives in the hill country of Judah. And you know who also lived in the hill country of Judah? Abraham and Sarah in Hebron. There's so many Old Testament connections here. He would have known these very things. He would have been aware of this. But Zacharias doesn't remember this. Zacharias should have remembered, but he didn't remember. He forgot. Although Zacharias is a righteous, godly man, in this moment he failed to believe the Lord. He, he has unbelief in his heart. And his unbelief is met then with a response from the angel in verse 19 to 20. You would think the angel just simply had to say, say it. This is what God says. And, and uh, Zacharias would have believed. But we read this. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Uh, you know, I don't know what the angel was thinking, but if I, if I was the angel, I would be incredulous, right? I just told you you're going to have a child. Do you know who I am? No, see, that's me and my boastfulness. Do you know who I am? That's kind of what Gabriel kind of does, but I don't think he does it in that boastfulness because, you know, he's a holy angel. He says, I am Gabriel. It's like a moment, this revelation. At this point, he's anonymous. He's any angel, right? But it doesn't matter. Any angel comes to tell you. The lowest ranking angel came to tell you that you're going to have a son. I think we'd all believe it, right? Because he's an angel. But he says, I am Gabriel. The angel reveals who he is. And immediately, Zacharias, you're like, whoa, Gabriel, I know this name. His mind would go back to Daniel, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, the, the visions that God gave him, that God gave Daniel. He would remember the prophecies, Daniel. This is the very same angel. This angel stands in the presence of God, right next, in his presence. And he has been sent, and that implies that he's been sent by someone. He's been sent by God. 
to speak to Daniel. And Zacharias fails to believe. Zacharias, uh, the angel, says so explicitly that you have not believed. But Zacharias has not just disbelieved the angel, Gabriel, but he has essentially disbelieved God himself because Gabriel comes from God. And so as punishment, but we could also see it as a sign, Zacharias would be silent and mute until all of Gabriel's words from God would be fulfilled in their proper time. And here's the key point of this message, that all of God's words will be fulfilled in their proper time. What he says, God will do. What he promises, God fulfills. Whether it's spoken directly from God or from an angel or from a prophet or from Christ himself or from this book. The people of God, when they hear God speak, ought to respond with faith and belief. You don't have to ask for a sign if God has said so. God has said so. It will happen. See, faith believes in God. Faith trusts his word. Faith believes that all that God says will be fulfilled in their proper time. So in verses 21 to 25, we begin to see the fulfillment of the angel's message. First, as Zacharias does, become mute. Verse 21 to 23, just as the angel says, The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. Uh, The people were outside waiting for him. They were praying at the same time. They were waiting for the priest to come out and offer the, the final benediction. They were expecting him to probably come out pretty quickly because how long does it take to offer some incense on an altar? The customary blessing, by the way, would have been from Numbers chapter 6 again. There's our same chapter where uh, we see the Nazarite vow come out of. But Numbers chapter 6, 24 and 26 is the customary uh, blessing that the priest would give upon the nation. The Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you, that one. But when he came out, he couldn't speak. He couldn't come out and give the blessing. He was just simply making gestures what would he have gestured? I have no idea. But they realized eventually that he'd seen a vision, that he'd seen a vision of God. And, and that's the, and the rest of it, the, what happened. Probably someone else just took his place. But after the week of ministry, we read that he returned back home in the hill country of Judah. That's where his home was. But the fulfillment of the angel's words continued. As he goes back home, Mute. Uh, there's indication, in fact, in later on in the birth narrative, that he was also deaf, that he couldn't hear because uh, people are going to make motions to him. In fact, uh, some of the words here can apply that. But you can imagine as he went home, he has all this excitement, all this uh, that he wants to convey to his wife. But it's probably the most frustrating time. There's probably a lot of confusion as he's trying to gesture things to his wife and communicate to Elizabeth all that the angel had said. He probably eventually just started writing it down somewhere. In verse 24 and 25, the, uh, what then continued to happen, the, angels, the fulfillment of the angel's words, final words in our, in our text. And these di- after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. She kept, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, 
This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Just as the angel had said so, Elizabeth became pregnant with their son. Her response recorded in verse 25. And here we see the, the, specific, the, the explicit statement of the feelings of disgrace that she felt because of her infertility. She acknowledges that God is the one who has removed her disgrace. She acknowledges that God is the one who has looked upon her with favor. And her words here, even as he, she is, uh, the statement, are reminiscent of the very blessing that Zacharias was unable to speak. Remember number six? The Lord make his face shine upon you. That is the Lord look upon you and give you grace. Show his favor upon you. The Lord show his favor upon you. By the way, that Lord show his favor upon you, you know what that means? It's transliterated to John. The Lord has made his face shine upon Elizabeth and Zacharias, has been gracious to her, and he's given them John, their son. The Lord is gracious to them. The Lord has kept has fulfilled his promises that even through the angel in their appropriate, proper time. And in due time, as we'll look at the life of John, we will see that God will fulfill his promise of salvation in its appointed time through the ministry of John the Baptist and eventually the one he would point to, God's son, Jesus Christ. And that's the story. So how do we apply this story to our lives today? As we conclude, we just simply uh, <coughs> can think of, I'd like to share with you three Ways that we can apply narrative. There are others, but three ways, particularly as we study Luke, that we can apply Luke's narrative to our life, okay? First of all, as we uh, look at Luke's narrative, we can learn a lot about the character of God to appreciate or to worship. We're going to learn much about God's character in the various narratives. Secondly, as we look at Luke's narratives, we're going to look at examples to follow. Examples in the characters that are involved where there's Jesus' example, or here in our text, the example of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Sometimes they're examples to avoid, but they're oftentimes they're examples to follow. And then thirdly, as we think about applications, we're going to be noticing attitudes, mind, uh, uh, mindsets, frame of mind, perspectives that we can develop or avoid as a result of uh, what we learn in the text. And so with this in mind, I want to offer us to three applications from this passage. Three applications that teaches us that God's plans for the world and for you are fulfilled in the proper time, okay? Or that flow out of that lesson. Here's lesson number one, or application number one. We learn about God in this passage, that God is faithful to his promises, and he fulfills them with attention to detail. See, God is not just nebulously fulfilling his promises. He's just not like vaguely fulfilling. God is specifically fulfilling his promises, he, specifically, he is specifically fulfilling them in every detail and circumstance of this universe. It's just that because we, we in our finiteness just tend to miss it. We don't notice the details. But God fulfills his promise of salvation to a T, as we've said. He doesn't just send his son. He also sends a forerunner to his son. He doesn't just call people to believe in his son. He calls people to prepare for his son. 
And the more we study the gospel of Luke, the more we will realize how much Jesus Christ fulfills every detail of God's salvation plan. And if God can be dependent upon for the details of our salvation, then he can be dependent upon for the details of our lives. Because our salvation didn't just stop the moment we believed. Our salvation is continuing, even now as we're being sanctified. And our salvation will be completed when one day we are glorified. And you can count on the very fact that God is involved in every detail of our lives to bring that about. God is involved in the details of your life. Secondly, this, Zacharias and Elizabeth are an example. They're an example for those who find themselves facing disappointment. In this case, their particular disappointment was infertility. And uh, if I ever write a a doctoral dissertation, I'm going to write about God's word has to say about infertility and how people can how people can respond uh, and, and not only uh, to it, but you can imagine uh, the situation. A couple watches as all the other couples around the, their age have children, and they have none. And as time goes on, they, life just passes by. Everybody proceeds on, and they begin to wonder what's wrong with themselves. You might even be asking yourself. You ask the Lord. Maybe there's, is there some sin in my life? Because I see that sometimes sin leads to infertility. Is something I've done? Is something more I need to do? But we find encouragement in texts like this. We find that righteous Zacharias and Elizabeth's infertility was not because of sin. It was because of God's plan to magnify his grace. This passage is not teaching us that eventually God will give you a child give you what you want. But you can guarantee this passage teaches that in God's purposes, God is involved in the plans of your life to magnify his grace. Like Zacharias and Elizabeth, we can learn to not be bitter, but be better. We can learn to be better Christians. You know, others serve God in the, in the abundance of God's blessings. And that's what God will do, which you may choose to do for others. But that is not for your lot for those who suffer through disappointment. Your lot is to serve God in the absence of blessing. And in doing so, you demonstrate the abundance of God's grace. Now, this principle can be generalized to so many other situations where you face disappointment in life, where you face circumstances that you cannot change, singleness, illness, loss of a loved one, accidents, unemployment, a wayward child, and so on. And through it all, we can trust God and we can learn to lean more upon his grace that is abundant in our weaknesses. Thirdly, we conclude from this and draw application from this that we need to let us keep developing an attitude of trust in God throughout everything. An attitude of trust in God. Here we see that righteous Zacharias was a genuine believer. He was not just a, a, one of those a hypocritical priests or the false priests. He, was, he faithfully served the Lord. His wife he was faithful too. But even for him, even for a godly Christian, a godly believer, he had his moment of failure, a moment of unbelief. No matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter what you may be doing for the Lord and your service to him, no matter how much you know about the Bible even, faith is constantly required of us in life. We walk by faith. That's constantly, continually present tense, not by sight. 
We need to be men and women who walk by faith always in God's, in God's promises, in God's word, in God himself. So often in this world that believes in randomness, we can fall into temptation to not trust in God. That simply everything's out of, it just simply happens, it's out of our control. But we must learn to be not like Zacharias, but more like Elizabeth. And trust God in the midst of our disappointments, in our lot in life, in our circumstances, and to keep having an attitude of trust. Whatever you are going through in this life, God wants you right now to be trusting him in it. Right? You're going through, whether it's good or bad, you're going through great, exciting things in life, yeah, you need to be walking by faith because you may be tempted to think that you, you did it. You're going through trials, you need to be walking by faith. Because you may be tempted to despair, but you know that God is in it. We need to be men and women who walk by faith because God keeps his promises. He fulfills every single promise, not only for the plan, his plan of salvation, but his promise of blessings to all, <coughs> to all those who worship him. In his own timing, in his own way, that we may not have the specifics promised like Zacharias gets promised here. But we can count on the fact that God will pro- has, kept, has made many promises to you and me to bless, to protect, to keep, to watch, to show grace and favor to you and me. And let us trust in him. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. Thank you for the story of the birth of John the Baptist. Thank you, Lord, that you keep your promises and you fulfill them to a T, that you are involved in the, in the fulfillment of your plan, not just as a big picture, but, Lord, in every little detail even, even how you orchestrate in, in the life of Zacharias and Elizabeth. And we thank you, Lord, for the, the lessons that we've taken from this, and I pray that you would cause each of us to take home some application, that you would cause us to see more of your character, your faithfulness to your promises. That we can trust in you, God. And Lord, for those who are finding themselves facing disappointment, may we learn from the life of Zacharias and Elizabeth not to become embittered. But Lord, that we would become better saints who trust more in you, who know that in our trials, is an opportunity for your grace to be magnified. And Lord, we cry out to you for more grace. Lord, we need your grace. We need your grace every moment, every day of our lives. We need more of it so that you would be magnified. For Lord, we are finite human beings. So God, we pray you magnify your grace in our lives. Just as you did in Zacharias and Elizabeth's life. Just as you did in John's life. And just as you did through your son's life, who came to manifest your grace on this earth. Father, help us to, tr- keep, to trust in Jesus always. If there's any here who do not yet know him as their Savior and Lord, we pray, we pray that they would heed the message of John the Baptist. Prepare and make way for the Lord. 
that they would be ready to receive Jesus Christ, who is coming to be their Savior and Lord. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Head on on to Sunday school class, and we'll see you next week.